morning, everyone. <laughs> if anyone uh, hasn't been here before, if you're new this morning, Ramakrishna is uh, the primary teacher, I guess, of the center here. His monks are the ones that have been invited to speak and teach here. So uh, that's him in the middle there. If you are new and have any questions, grab anyone at random or certainly anyone dressed in orange to answer any questions that you might have. They'd be more than happy to, be thrilled to. So this is my first time speaking, actually, Swami A, with a senior monk in presence. So I offer pranams. <laughs> Before we start, I always go through a little ritual for myself, and hopefully it's not too troublesome for everyone, just to kind of set my mind and to set the environment. When, uh, when Thakur, Ramakrishna, um, was asked uh, several times in his, in his teachings about what, what one of the most important teachings was. He said it was earnestness and sincerity of heart. And uh, he said if you were earnest and you were sincere, that God himself would take care of the rest of teaching you what you need to know and getting you where you need to go. And so I've always tried to set that as a standard for myself, and certainly whenever I approach the scriptures or have the gall to stand up and say something in front of people, I always try and establish that, that place first. The second is from the teachings of Jesus when he was asked a very similar question, and he said that love, love was the most important thing, to love God and to love each other as you love yourselves. And uh, so I always want to come from that place as well, to interpret the scriptures from that foundation, to encourage that from myself to you, from you for each other, and uh, for those who aren't, aren't in this room, beyond. And then the third, I come back to Ramakrishna, when he was throwing away the, the pairs of opposites, trying to find equanimity of mind in this kind of tumultuous world. He was throwing away, you know, good and bad and whatnot, pretty ugly. You can take any of the pairs, and he would have been happy to throw them away until he got to truth and untruth. In all the other opposites, he was saying, you know, take your good and take your bad and just give me pure love for you. And when he came to truth, he picked up truth and he was about to cast it and realized he couldn't do without truth. And so he held on to truth. And so I want to do the same. And uh, it's a truth that has many levels to it. Uh, in a situation like this, it's a truth for approaching the scriptures. And it's a truth for inside when you hear the scriptures, to be able to hear what they're saying, to be able to take an honest look at what's going on inside and uh, to make tough decisions and challenging decisions and new commitments uh, for going forward. And with that, I always like to uh, read a poem from Hafiz. He was a Persian poet, a, I think a Sufi poet, but at least an Islamic poet from, the, I think, the 12th century. You'll have to verify all of that, the important parts of the poem. He says, I eat and I dress and I labor. That's the name. I wake from a nap and the same clear words greet my mind that I say every day upon waking. Where can I find the friend? I eat and dress and labor for only one reason. But why explain about the essential today and demean the holy? We are a couple of barroom sailors marooned in need of good drink and company to true our perceptions. Otherwise, I'm concerned about that odd look that sometimes creeps into your eyes that seems to mistake me for a pretty available mermaid. 
Upon waking each day, my first words to my heart always are, any news of the friend? We're going to continue our talk today, kind of building on what we talked about last time. We were talking, looking at the Kata Upanishad, which talks about the adventures of Nachiketas and his uh, uh, brush with death, as it were. And uh, just as a matter of review, uh, we were talking about uh, reading it from the perspective of being Nachiketa, that this morning you are Nachiketa, and that story is in uh, active unfolding around you right now, real time, that we are, in fact, uh, in the kingdom of death. He rules supreme in this world, that all of us as spiritual seekers have uh, gone to ask for the meaning of life. We're trying to find out what this is all about. And in our current situation, death has, in fact, offered us anything in alternative. Uh, he's, he's given us the possibility of riches and wealth and physical enjoyment and whatnot. And uh, we're being tempted as it goes along with that. He's trying to distract us from our purpose. But uh, by evidence of being here for another Sunday, at least some have, to, some have survived and not taken that alternative. We've looked at life as a sacrifice, that Nachiketas' father's whole life was a sacrifice, and Nachiketas was looking at it as a young man and saw that uh, no matter what his father had done and accomplished, that all of it grew old and withered and died, had had its best years behind it. And so he understood that life couldn't be in those things, and he said that to his father, and his father said, well, gave him also to death. And as we know, our parents gave us to death as well when they gave us to birth, that the two are never separate. And so uh, that's where we left it the last time. Nachiketas was interviewing death about the important things in the world and what happens after death and what it's all about. And uh, we're now in what they call canto number two, which I interpret as chapter two, but they have another thing called chapter two. Anyway, that's where we are. And uh, we're going to look at... Uh, uh, Discrimination, discernment, being able to tell what's real and what's not real in going forward. We're going to, like Nachiketas, accept death as a teacher for us. Not something to be afraid of, but something that we can learn from and, and uh, help us in our, in our understanding of what's right, what's best, what's most helpful to us. Uh, in the world, the idea of death, I know at least I've gotten in trouble with my mom for reminding her that, that she will pass away someday, <laughs> so I know it's not a popular topic, but it's a beautiful topic, and I hope by the end of the scriptures this morning that, we, that I've looked at at least this last couple of weeks, uh, that she'll agree that, it, that it's a beautiful thing and a helpful thing and something that can make the beautiful more beautiful and uh, make the profound more profound. So I want to look at the power of this practice, this idea of keeping death always in mind, you know, not in that morbid way, but in a way of understanding, in a way of learning. And uh, for me, the first one, uh, the first example, uh, as profound as it was at one time, uh, is that of Ramana Maharshi. Many of you may have known him. He was a sage uh, that lived in India, uh, not too much later than Sri Ramakrishna uh, was there. And actually, there was some appreciation um, for him on Ramana Maharshi's part. Uh, actually, uh, Damodara Nando, an old Swami that was at Belarmat, who I got, a, a, I, co I considered a privilege. It really was a great, great fun and a great privilege to sit and hear him talk about his time with uh, Ramana Maharshi. He lived in Ramana Maharshi's ashram for a while. 
and uh, had some delightful stories to tell about that experience that were quite beautiful. But I stumbled across uh, a first-person account of Ramana, Ramana Maharshi's enlightenment experience. And so I want to read that to you, uh, to kind of to build on this idea, his death as a teacher. This is a first-person account by Ramana Maharshi of his enlightenment. He says, One day I was alone in the first floor of my uncle's house. I was in my usual state of health. But a sudden and unmistakable fear of death seized me. I felt like I was going to die. Why I should have so felt, I cannot now be explained by anything else in the body. I did not, however, trouble myself to discover if the fear was well-grounded. I did not care to consult doctors or elders or even friends. I felt I had to solve the problem myself, then and there. The actual inquiry and discovery of who am I was over on the very first day, after a very short time. Instinctively, I held, on, held my breath and began to dive inward with my inquiry into my own nature. I stretched myself like a corpse, and it seemed to me that my body had actually become rigid. I was not dead. I was, on the other hand, conscious of being alive in existence. So though a question arose in me, what was this I? I felt that it was a force or current working, despite the rigidity or activity of the body, though existing in connection with it. It was that current or force or center that constituted my personality, that kept me acting, moving, etc. The fear of death dropped off. I was absorbed in contemplation of that current. So further development or activity was issuing from new life and not from any fear. What happened after this was narrated by Ramana Maharshi, by Ramana, by Ramana to Narashima Swami. That experience changed my mental attitude and habits. I had formerly some preferences and aversions, and all of these dropped off. Food was swallowed with equal indifference. I would put up with every burden imposed on me at home, every slight at, the ex at my expense by the boys at school. Studies and duties became a matter of utter indifference. I was going through studies, turning over pages mechanically. After my enlightenment, there was no change in the state of my steady self-abidance. That's a story of a single event. You know, he, <laughs> he was a perfect student, apparently. You know, I, I was talking with Swami Prabhupada once about the perfect student in uh, uh, the... Uh, the Dantasari, I guess it was, or the uh, yeah, Crest Jewel of Discrimination also, the, where it gives up these, these incredible criteria for what the perfect student is. And I was complaining because, uh, you know, I, I wasn't meeting all of them. <laughs> so I told Swami, I said, what was the point of that? Why would he put that in the very beginning as being a requirement for the perfect student? I mean, obviously nobody's going to read chapter two. We're all going to set the book down and go home and cry, you know, if that's the requirement. And he said, well, he's talking about an ideal. He said the perfect student, according to that scripture, is one that when you sit down and the teacher simply bends over and whispers in his ear, thou art that, boom. He understands fully. Everything unfolds instantly for him. So we have a situation like that here. We have Ramana Maharshi, a perfect student, who laid there one afternoon realizing his terrible fear of dying, 
laid out bare before him, and uh, instead of freaking out about it, he laid down and investigated it to try and figure out where it was coming from, who was afraid, who was this I that he was clutching onto so tightly. And in that experience, he lays down on the floor and pretends to be dead and investigates what that must be like, realizing that he can't imagine it, realizing that he can't come up with any idea of what death was. But one of the things I really liked in reading about it, he said, I felt I had to solve the problem myself then and there. That urgency, you know, Nachiketas was was praised by death for having that same kind of spirit, wanting to find out then and there that urgency, you know, about his spiritual life. Taking all the things into account of his whole life, he put them aside. He was like, this is the most profound problem in my life. I have to figure out what it's about. And so Ramana Maharshi exhibited to that. He began to dive inward with my inquiry into my own nature. I, and he puts it in quotes, I was not dead. I was, on the other hand, conscious of being alive. That's an interesting way of saying it. He was conscious of being alive. This I was conscious of being alive. He wasn't saying that the I was alive. You know, that wasn't... The understanding, he said that the I was conscious of being alive, that it was witnessing something separate from itself. You know, alive is, is existence is its nature, that the nature of the I were told, satchit ananda, existence, knowledge, bliss, or love absolute. So he was seeing that and, and understanding that. And uh, this gave great food for, for time in the shrine, for when you're sitting and doing your meditation. You know, to, to go through this exercise and try and follow Ramana Maharshi's little journey there into death. Because I can remember one time I was at a, a, a retreat, not a, not a spiritual retreat by any means, uh, back in 97 or something. And uh, this is the only similarity between me and Ramana Maharshi was <laughs> that I was sitting there at this, at this talent show. And it was a very festive account. Everybody was laughing and there was great frivolity going on, a slight bit of other things. And I was sitting there, but not feeling somehow a part of it, feeling very odd. And I suddenly had this profound fear of death out of nowhere, just come over me. And I had this feeling that we were all on this ramp, just sliding uncontrollably toward the end of the funnel, you know, who knew what we were dropping into. But I could just see this whole room, everybody laughing, everybody, you know, all engaged and just and I was just sitting there completely, like I was completely in another world, suddenly becoming more and more terrified with this idea of like, how come nobody's feeling this? How come nobody's understanding this? I mean, we're, we're all sliding on this floor even as we're partying away here to this unknown end. And it became such an intensity, I had to leave, I had to leave the party. Of course, I didn't realize God at that time. I won't go into, that's where the teaching ends, because what I did in reaction to it certainly was not uh, helpful. <laughs> I just tried to get away from it, to escape from that idea, which I think is really one of your only, op- only alternatives if you don't take up the quest and take, don't take up spiritual life. A large portion of life becomes about distraction, about keeping that vibration high enough so you don't sink into that quiet space where you don't have answers uh, for. And he highlights that very beautifully at the end. He says, so further development or activity was issuing from a new life. So he said that he found kind of in this practice, he found a new place to come from, this idea of this, this in, uh, life that couldn't be extinguished, you know, this 
part of him that could not imagine death because it had no experience of death. It had, death was not a part of its nature. Living in that and, and just, you know, he talks about just being completely absorbed in the self-abidance. So much that nothing in the, in the outside world mattered in the sense that it couldn't disrupt him. Not in the sense that he didn't care, you know. That's a big mistake I think a lot of, we make a lot of times. Because we think, we forget our true nature, and we think of, when we think of nothing, we think of the, the height of tamas, you know, of, of, of inertia, nothing, emptiness. But in the light of that emptiness, you always have to remember that we have our inner nature. And in that nothing, it comes forth, you know, that, that pure love, that pure being, that, that uh, pure knowledge radiates uh, and becomes all-consuming. He sat in that space and was filled with it, uh, you know. And the rest of his life came from that space, came from that beautiful, constant emanation of this inexhaustible love, this inexhaustible experience of being, this inexhaustible fount of knowledge, of wisdom, of understanding each moment perfectly and exactly. And he counters it by saying, and not from fear, not from fear. Swamiji opened my eyes in a lot of ways about why Ramana Harshi would, would make that counter. Because I think that under close inspection, we find that maybe even all, and if not all, a vast majority of our activity comes from a place of fear. You know, we go to work because we don't want to lose, <laughs> lose the house. You know, we, we're always trying, saying I'm sorry so that we don't lose the relationships, we don't lose our friends. You know, we, we fix our faces and our hair and our clothes to go out into the world so that we're not, you know, ugly or, you know, whatever. All of those, in a sense, are a manifestation of being afraid. You know, that sense of other. And as long as that sense of other exists, as long as we divide the world into two, fear will always be a component of that because you don't know the other. You don't have a definition for the other. So you don't put you always in a place of instability. So how do we get out of this? What are, what are some of the, the tools for dealing with this, this, this discernment? I call discernment an art because anything involving love, I think, is an art. And discernment fundamentally involves love. You know, it involves a knowledge of the self. In the Katu Upanishad, the next verse after our lecture from the last time we were here, says, the preferable and the pleasurable are different indeed. Serving divergent purposes as they do, they bind men. Good befalls him who accepts the preferable among these two. He who selects the pleasurable falls from the true end. So he sets up something here that I call the the short-term versus the long-term view. You know, after, after looking at some of the other ideas around, around this, those things that are pleasurable in the moment, those things that, that immediately seem like a good idea, usually they're big pieces of cake, beautiful people, huge promises of cash, <laughs> an extra hour of sleep, these things that in the moment seem like they're a good idea, but in the long term are a poison. You know, if you sleep in all the time, you lose your job. <laughs> whatever, not that you will lose your job, you sleep in all the time, but you become lazy, you become unmotivated, you become out of control. If you always have that piece of cake, you get larger and larger and larger and larger. And if you don't at some point check it, you just, it becomes your death. And you can see that in any vice. 
in any vice, you know. One thing that's great about Vedanta is it doesn't, it doesn't have a list of, of do's and don'ts for its own sake. It says, this is not advisable. Here's why. If you don't agree with it, just check it out. Do some, do some experimentation and uh, find out what's going on. And one of the ways that things break out is that this short-term good versus this long-term good. I think it's Isaiah that was uh, handed a scroll in the Old Testament, and he was told to eat it. So he eats this scroll, and uh, he describes it as you know, sweet in the mouth, but bitter in his stomach. And then the angel gives him another scroll and he eats that one. And this one, he says, wow, this one was very bitter in the mouth, but boy, it was sweet in my stomach. And that was exactly what, uh, what death is talking to Nachiketas about here. It's taking a look at things, you know, getting a broader perspective, seeing things not in how they seem at the moment, but how they're going to seem to you tomorrow after you've done them, you know, and so if you live your life for the best of what's tomorrow, for a better tomorrow, and not the better, you know, the more enjoyable or pleasurable moment, uh, the scriptures say you're going to come, you're going to get to the right end. You're going to, you're going to realize your true nature. You're going to get there quicker. And he says here, he says, he who selects the pleasurable is going to fall from the true end. You're not going to, you're, it's going to take you longer <laughs> to have, to have the, the, the true reward, reward likes to talk in those regards, but in that idea, you're not going to realize that highest nature that is yours, that place of, of wonderful freedom and purity. The preferable and the pleasurable approach man. The man of intelligence, having considered them, separates the two. The intelligent one selects the electable over the delectable. <laughs> The non-intelligent one selects the delectable for the sake of growth and protection of the body. I highlighted that because that's interesting. It's not like the person's just an obvious fool who, who chooses the delectable. You know, it's not that they're just that they're going to look obviously stupid in the world. You know, it's not like that. They're going to be normal people. And actually, if you talk to them about it, they're going to have good reasons for doing it, or, or, you know, at least a string of thinking that can logically take you to that place, you know, but it's going to be body-based. It's going to be investment in the physical at some point. Now that's fine, you know, because we've all got a body at this moment. But I learned a great lesson from uh, Swami Asitananda, and I'm sure I've mentioned it many times. He was an old monk in San Francisco in the Alima retreat, which is out in the middle of nowhere. And Swami Asitananda, by the end of his life, had learned to sit in a room by himself, unattended, unable to get out of the chair, in absolute happiness, absolute bliss. You know, he was in his 80s. He could no longer get up out of his chair and couldn't move. Everything had to be brought to him. <laughs> you know, he had diapers. I mean, it was the whole, you know, the whole shebang for old age, that thing that terrifies all of us. And he sat there, and I, I used to go out on Tuesdays to do some work, and I would walk by his room several times a day and just kind of glance in through the door to make sure he hadn't fallen or that, you know, he didn't need something. And the thing that was so striking to me is every time I walked by that room, he would be there just kind of glancing off with this insane smile on his face, just content, happy. There was no radio playing. There was no TV going. There was no book being read, no knitting <laughs> going on. He was just sitting there, just perfectly content, because he lived a life where he didn't invest 
in that which was failing him. He didn't build his life on the things that brought pleasure. You know, it's like I'm turning this. I'm going to mention this every every opportunity I get from now until I'm 51. I'm turning 50 in two months. <laughs> Not a big deal for you who have done it. <laughs> Unimaginable for you who haven't. <laughs> but uh, somewhat at least insight-causing for, for me in going through it. Because, uh, you know, I, there was a portion of my life where I didn't understand any of this. And uh, I'm very happy to have been able to, to be encouraged in the choices that I made because I'm more and more being confronted with these, these ideas. You know, your body, if it's the source of your pleasure and the source of what you're living for, you know... I don't, I don't say this to like, you know, scared straight kind of thing, you know, where it's like, Ooh, don't do this. But I'm saying this as a realization. Wow. I never thought I would be 50. The oldest I ever thought I would be was 35 as a kid, you know, I, and that was because that was the year 2000. And somehow when I was a little kid, I always wondered how old am I going to be in 2000 and 35 was that number. And that was literally, honestly, truthfully, the maximum age I ever considered myself being that I ever thought about. Now I'm 50. And I wish I'd thought about that <laughs> because you don't have the tools to get what you want. If you build a life on serving pleasure, you know, one, you don't have the energy to go running around the world. Like you may have done in your twenties or thirties. You don't have the looks to go out and find your partners. You know, you don't have uh, you don't have the free time <laughs> to go doing. And if you have the time, there's a great saying, I won't be able to remember it. You never get all three time. What is it? Time, money, and uh, energy. When you're young, you've got the time and the energy, but you don't have the money. When you're in the middle of your age, you've got the money and the energy, but no time. And when you're in your old age, you've got the, the money and the time and no energy. <laughs> so, you, have, you never have the three components necessary for living a pleasurable life. And the scriptures are just trying to, they're just trying to be helpful. They're not trying to be preachy. They're not trying to talk down. They're just trying to be helpful, saying, hey, think about this, because every one of us is in the kingdom of death. We're going to grow old, and we're going to face these things. And not everybody, but many of us, are going to lose a lot of the abilities uh, that we count on for keeping ourselves happy. You know, if Swami Sitananda had not found that inner contentment, that inner, that inner bliss, uh, what a nightmare sitting in a room all day long unattended is going to be like. I mean, that, that's <laughs> going to be horrible, you know. So it's taking this into account. If you don't take it into account, uh, life is going to become impossible. You're not, the other way just isn't going to work for you, taking the short-term view. And if, if you're not highly distracted the whole way through, I mean, you can live a life where you live for the short term and you just say, you just stay so intensely distracted that none of these more troubling thoughts occur to you. That, that can happen. Although I guarantee at some point it's going to exhaust you and you're going to accidentally have to think about these things in the end. I had a, a class, an acting class in college that pointed this measure out to me infinitely. I wasn't interested in spiritual life at the time. Actually, I had a very strong aversion to spiritual life at the time. But I was in this theater class, and we had this exercise where we were all paired up, one with the other. I think I might have told this story before, but that's all right. 
And uh, we were told to stand facing each other about six inches apart, maintaining eye contact, not allowed to break eye contact, and you're not allowed to touch the other person. Those were the only instructions. You could do anything else, but you had to maintain eye contact. You couldn't move either. You had to keep your feet planted, but you could move and you could do whatever you wanted to do, whatever artsy artsy people come up with you were allowed to do. But you couldn't break eye contact, you couldn't touch, and you couldn't move your feet. Doesn't seem like a big deal. Try it with somebody. And for 10 minutes, we did that. And at the end of the 10 minutes, there were some people that were laughing hysterically. There were some people who were just bawling, just in tears. There were some people that were just standing there being really silent and intense. But it was an unmistakable experience for everybody in the room when all of a sudden Robert Taylor, the teacher, slammed this pointer on the wall. Bang! 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 He did it like eight times. Bang! Without saying anything. And then he kept doing it, but he started talking. He said, every time this stick hits the wall, a moment of your life is gone. It will never be recaptured. It will never be relived. It will be never be yours to shape again. Bang! 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 Okay. I had to go into therapy. His point, <laughs> his point, he went on to talk about the moment being the only tool of the actor and to, to recognize it and capture it and mold it and hand it to the audience, whatnot. I walked out of that class in serious need of therapy because I just saw this water running through my hands that I couldn't stop no matter what, realizing that life was <laughs> literally bang, bang, bang. I was like, it was putting me in a panic. And I was like, what, what am I spending my life on? You know, even walking between class that day was a horrendous waste of time. I was like, my, what am, I'm wasting my time walking between classes. You know, it's like everything. And I understood that if you live like that, there is nothing worth spending that moment on. There is nothing worth spending that moment on. There's nothing good enough to spend that moment. And at that point, what a profound realization that was for me to realize that life had to be about something else besides just being alive. That life had to be something more, something deeper. There had to be something besides just being alive that was the valuable thing. You know, of course, through karma yoga, I learned to live life as worship. That makes it beautiful. Spend life on love. So I saw that and felt that fear. Nothing is worth the expense of life. So you have to take the long view. You have to look at the bigger picture in order to, to, to find God. And the scriptures are laying that out for us. Sri Ramakrishna says, one should constantly remember death. Nothing will survive death. You know, he goes on, he says, remember it all the time. It will put things in perspective for you. It's going to show you what's real and what's unreal. Now, the spooky thing about it is the beginning Everything that you see is going to end. Everything that you know is going to end. And that's a horrible thing. That's why people don't think about death. All your friends, gone. Your mom, gone. Your, your, your lover, gone. Your body, gone. Your mind, gone. Your degree, gone. You know, and, and for the, for the, there's a few people whose names might remain. But honestly, 99% of us in the room, you know, like I know when I leave town, I go back five years later and <laughs> like, nobody remembers me, you know. After we die, that's it, you know? And so in the beginning, that's a terrifying thought because what else is there? And that's exactly the point that Nachiketas was making. He was like, what else is there? 
That's the whole point of spiritual life. What else is there? Anything else? And if we had, if the sages had continually found out that there was nothing else, religion would not be a part of our life today. You know, useless things don't stick around. They, they just don't stick around. Useless things drop off by the nature of this world. It's just the way it is. So the sages didn't find that. The sages found something different. Ramakrishna goes on to say, one does not die if one sinks into this ocean. This is the ocean of immortality. Once I said to Narendra, his picture's on the right over there. Once I said to Narendra, God is the ocean of bliss. Tell me if you want to plunge into it. Just imagine there is some syrup in a cup that you have come, and you have become a fly. Now tell me, where will you sit and sip the syrup? Narendra, he falls headfirst into the trap here. <laughs> Narendra answered, I'll sit on the edge of the cup and stretch my neck out and drink, because I'm sure to die if I go far into the cup. Then Ramakrishna said to him, Aha, but my child, this is the ocean of Satchitananda. There is no fear of death in it. So Narendra, Vivekananda was doing the very reasonable thing. And it's unfortunately the trap, I'll be bold and say all of us fall into. You want to hold on to both worlds. You know, he doesn't want to dive in for death. He's going, I will die if I jump into the syrup. Of course, Thakur says, there's no fear of death in this exercise. Jump into the ocean of immortality. Because to sit on the edge and sip is to try and hold on to two diverging paths. You know, this idea of this service of the short time, short term, being concerned about it, it's going that way. You know, and the things that are lasting, the things that are immortal, the things that are unchanging, the things that are never failing, they're, they're not moving. But <laughs> so we'll say they're going that way because you're going this way if you're holding on to this guy. So you can't hold on to both. You know, it's not going to happen. And that's why Ramakrishna says to him, but my child, this is the ocean of Satchitananda. Knowledge, existence, bliss, absolute. There is no fear of death in it. On Monday, January 1st, 1883, he jumps into a deeper understanding or deeper teaching on this idea of how to jump, how to make sure that you're making, you're jumping fully into the syrup, that you're not holding on to both sides. He calls it discrimination. And he says, so when we say discrimination, let's just start with a new definition. <laughs> Forget any of the social ideas of discrimination, not relevant here. He says, discrimination means to know the distinction between the real and the unreal. God alone is real and permanent. All else is illusory and impermanent. The magician alone is real. His magic is illusory. This is discrimination. So he talks about seeing the real from the unreal, the changing from the unchanging. And if you don't know what the unchanging is, join the club. But sit and find it, because the sages said the ones who have successfully found it, Ramana Maharshi, who bathed in it after that experience, found that it exists. It is you. It is you. All the ideas of you that you have attached to your personality, to your looks, to your sex, to your knowledge, to your education, those are, those are irrelevant. They're not you. Those are just manifestations of something. You are behind all of that. And it's the only thing that manifests this whole world. Pure love. It's the motive for everything you've ever done, the everything that anybody has ever done, from the heinous to the beautiful. This self, 
which exists already in you, which is a fact of being for you this morning, is what the scriptures is telling us to bathe in, to find. You can't see it with the senses. You can't rationalize it with the mind. You have to step beyond both of those things. It takes a lot of work, and we'll go into this here. He adds another thing, discrimination and renunciation. Discrimination means to know the distinction between the real and the unreal. Renunciation means to have dispassion for the things of the world, for the unreal. One cannot acquire them all of a sudden. They must be practiced every day. One should renounce lust and greed mentally first. Then, by the will of God, one can renounce it both mentally and outwardly. It is impossible to ask the people of Calcutta or Washington, D.C. to renounce everything for the sake of God. One has to tell them to renounce mentally. Through the discipline of constant practice, one is able to give up attachment to lust and to greed. That is what the Gita says. By practice, one acquires uncommon power of mind. Then one doesn't find it difficult to subdue the sense organs and to bring anger, lust, and the like under control. So this is something, if you're interested in it, you know, if you're wanting to see the long term, if it's something if you, you want to find that ocean of immortality that Ramakrishna was challenging Vivekananda to dive into, which he did, by the way, ultimately do, to dive into that understanding, to have that realization, it's not an easy thing to do. Well, it's funny because sometimes they say it's easy when they're teasing you, and then they say it's not easy when they're admonishing you. Here he's saying it's not easy, something you have to be committed to every single day. It has to become a perspective that's constantly running in the back of your mind. He, he says 15 out of the 16 portions of your mind have to be engaged in thinking about things that last, things that don't change, and that one sixteenth you can run your life with. He says it's more than enough. He gives that, that, that example of the, the woman that works at the grinding mill. She's got the baby nursing in one hand, and she's running a transaction selling flour with, with the man. And at the same time, there's this mill wheel going around with the big uh, crusher coming to break down the seeds, and she's putting the seeds in with this hand. You know, And if she does that out of time, her hand gets crushed in the machine. So she's carrying on all of this, and at the same time, doing this, you know, very dangerous maneuver. And he uses that example. That's how you have to live in the world. Do all of this stuff, but keep the mind always conscious of what's going on over here, lest your hand get crushed in the machine. You know, so live your life, but constantly be measuring what's going on around you with that measure stick of death. Is this lasting? Is this part of the unchangeable? Is this the immortal? Is this the pure? Is this that abiding space that cannot be changed, that cannot be anything but love, that cannot be anything but, but bliss, absolute, forever? In the Ashtavakra Samhita, he talks about renunciation. And I'm going to spend the last couple of minutes here talking about this idea because we've got a very negative or often have a negative idea of renunciation you know, we think this renouncing is getting rid of something. It's pushing things away. And it's usually the things we like, like that piece of cake, you know, <laughs> like that, uh, you know, whatever. All those things that are pleasant in the moment but not in the long run. It's a matter of pushing those things away. We have to change that idea. We have to change that idea. Because you can't just spend your life pushing things away. 
Because if you spend your life pushing things away, you're spending your life looking at the things that have no value and forgetting that thing which is of the greatest value, which is the whole reason for pushing things away, because you've got a bigger piece of cake behind you. You've got a, you know, a more beautiful person within you. You've got a more satisfying rave going on inside than anything going on the outside. So renunciation is a going toward. It's not a walking away. It's going toward something beautiful, something fulfilling, something never-ending, something reliable, something stable, something firm, something free, utterly, absolutely free. This is the idea of renunciation. There is something in us, Vivekananda says, which is free and permanent, but it is not the body, neither is it the mind. The body is dying every minute. The mind, constantly changing. The body is a combination, so is the mind, and as such they can never reach a state beyond all change. But beyond this momentary sheathing of gross matter, beyond even the finer covering of the mind, is the Atman, the true self of man, the permanent, the ever-free. It is his freedom that is percolating through layers of thought and matter, and in spite of the colorings of name and form, is ever asserting its unshackled existence. It is his deathlessness, his bliss, his peace, his divinity that shines out and makes itself felt in spite of the thickest layers of ignorance. He is the real man, the fearless one, the deathless one, the free. Now the freedom is only possible when no external power can exert any influence, produce any change. Freedom is only possible to the being who is beyond all condition, all law, all bondages of cause and effect. In other words, the unchangeable alone can be free and therefore immortal. This being, this Atman, this real self of man, the free, the unchangeable, is beyond all condition, and as such, it has neither birth nor death. This is what renunciation is. This is what you're looking at when you push that cake away. Because when you're looking at this, you don't even have to push that cake away. You're going to step on it on your way past. It's going to become something trivial, something completely couldn't even begin to touch what you found, what you've seen, what you've experienced. Your renunciation has to be based on that, that vision of returning home, finding that priceless and beautiful vision inside that has motivated your quest through the senses for your whole life. It is the love you've been looking for and that partner that you've been searching endlessly for that's caused you to go through numerous breakups to try it again, you know. It's been that drive to get that infinite amount of money, you know, so that you can be free and not have to worry about expenses and old age and all of these things. It's the satisfaction of that, you know. It's that immortality, that existence, that knowledge, that death has nothing to do with, where, with you and where you're at right now. Swamiji says in his lecture, The Real Nature of Man, we see the world as we are. What you see in the world is what you, what's going on in your mind. Suppose there is a baby in a room with a bag of gold on the table and a thief comes and steals the gold. 
Will the baby know it was stolen? That which we have inside, we see outside. Okay, this is why the scriptures are telling you to renounce. This is why they're saying, look at the long term. This is why they're saying, spend the time. Invest your daily work and exercise in purifying the mind. Why? So that you can be free, so that the world will no longer be your prison. It will no longer be the confusion that you see when you look through this mind of confusion. That you will see it as that, that, that manifestation of something infinite, overwhelming. That which we have inside, we see outside. The baby is no thief inside, so he sees no thief outside. So with all knowledge, do not talk of the wickedness of the world and all of its sins. Do not talk of it. Weep that you are bound to see this wickedness yet. Weep that you are bound to see sin everywhere. And if you want to help the world, do not condemn it. Do not weaken it anymore. For what is sin? What is misery? What are all of these but the results of weakness? The world is made weaker and weaker every day by such teachings. Men are taught from childhood that they are weak, that they are sinners. Teach them that they are all glorious children of immortality. Even, even those who are the weakest manifestation, let positive, strong, helpful thought enter into their brains from their very childhood. Lay yourself open to these thoughts and not to the weakening and paralyzing ones. Say to your own minds, I am he, I am he. Let it ring day and night in your mind like a song. And at the point of death, declare, I am he. That is the truth. That is infinite strength. And, it's, and it is yours. Drive out the superstition that has covered your mind. Let us be brave. Let us know the truth and practice the truth. The goal may be distant, but awake, arise, and stop not until this goal is reached. That's from the man who finally jumped into the syrup. <laughs> finally jumped into the syrup. It happens all the time in heaven, and someday it will begin to happen again on earth. That men and women who are married, and men and men who are lovers, and women and women who give each other light, often will get down on their knees, and while so tenderly holding their lover's hand, with tears in their eyes, will sincerely speak, saying, My dear, how can I be more loving to you? How can I be more kind? Let's take just a moment to think about these things quietly. That last poem was also by Hafiz. Hafiz.